I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Amen. Thank you, Joe, for leading us today. I want to just mention briefly uh, how much I appreciate uh, this body and the way it does ministry, uh, both in our community and ministering to one another. Uh, Yesterday was a beautiful example of that. Uh, One of our ladies, Miss Alice Oberly, uh, she was 97, almost 98. Uh, She went home to be with the Lord last week. And so we had a memorial service here yesterday, and I asked the family if we could put these flowers here uh, just in her honor. And uh, Becky and Bonnie, the family, they did a, a wonderful job planning the memorial service. And, and uh, uh, her son-in-law, uh, Nick, and grandson Joey spoke, and I brought a short message at the end. I got tickled at uh, Becky and Bonnie. Uh, Becky's not here. Are, they're not here. Are they? I don't want to uh, wave at them if they are. But Becky and Bonnie were in my office this week, and I told them, I said, uh, now look, when, when it comes to my part, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a short message. And they both, in two-part harmony, said, Amen, Amen, Amen. I said, what, what, what? Hold on a minute now. Short. I told Becky, I said, that's the first time we've ever got you to say Amen in church. But uh, we had a wonderful time yesterday just honoring her life. And I want to say thank you to our church folks that fed the family and did so much. And if I really rewind through the week, this week was kind of one of those weeks where uh, we could kind of highlight something every day uh, that went on in our ministry all the way back to uh, you know, our Alberta campus serving a family over there in a benefit for a young uh, 13-year-old boy that has cancer. Uh, English as a second language meeting on Tuesday night. We had a new group uh, come in there from Moldova that uh, they were able to begin to minister to. And then I want to say thank you to the staff for Friday night uh, watching the kids. Yeah, we, uh, those of you that dropped your kids off, thank you for clapping. Um, our nerves are shot. I'm only kidding. We had a great time with the kids. Had about 50 kids that showed up Friday night, and, and we just watched them from, it seemed like 24 hours, but it was only about four. Appreciate the staff taking the time to do that and do ministry, and we appreciate, appreciate them doing that. Amen. If you're a guest today, uh, I, I was listening to a podcast on the way into church this morning, and the podcast was talking about uh, expository preaching, the preaching of the Bible. And at our church, we are very committed to that, verse by verse. So in other words, when we're, we're uh, in a series or we're preaching a message, we don't come up with a thought out here and then come to the Bible and try to find a text or a story that goes with that. We go to the Bible and we let the text speak for itself. Line upon line, precept upon precept, we want to always preach the text in its context, the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of the text. We don't want to twist a verse to make it fit what we feel like is a really good application. Uh, we want to let the text speak for itself. And so I would just encourage you as you come. I know we live in a day where we you know, read the Bible on our phones and tablets. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to bring it. If you don't have a Bible, uh, under the chairs around you, there are Bibles underneath. Uh, if you don't have one, we'd love for you to take one of those as a gift from us. Uh, we only have one stipulation. It's that you use it, okay? Uh, we don't want members to have like 12 of these stacked up at their house, okay? So please take that, use it. If not, it'll be up on the screen. I'm uh, thankful some of the folks that have a little struggles with their eyes are thankful that the words are up on the screen uh, so that they can see it each week. But we want to get into the Word, so I want you to do that with me now, okay? Revelation chapter 3, uh, we have been in this series, the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation, and today we're going to land the plane on this series in chapter 3, verses 14 uh, through 22. Uh, how many of you would say right now you're comfortable, uh, maybe temperature-wise, and that seat you're in is okay? Wave at me. You're pretty comfortable right now? Okay. Well, my goal today is to make you uncomfortable, all right? The, the title of my message is A Comfortable Church, A Comfortable Church, which describes, I believe, the church at Laodicea. Hear the word of the Lord, Revelation chapter 3, 
verse number 14. To the angel, uh, to the pastor, the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How does that work for encouragement on a Sunday morning, right? In this letter from Jesus. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Would you bow your head and just pray a prayer something like this? Holy Spirit, help me to see and hear and understand what I need from this text. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, we pray that you'll be saved today, that you'll see Jesus hanging on that cross for you. He took your sin and his body on the tree, and he died. He shed his blood. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that you could be forgiven and set free, so that the penalty of sin, God's wrath and judgment, would be lifted off of you, so that, if you will, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we pray today would be your day of salvation. For all the Christians in the room, we pray... Holy Spirit, you would be our illuminator. Help us to understand, give us understanding to this text. What is the text saying and how does it apply to us today? We pray that Christians would be encouraged, that Christians would repent, that Christians would maybe look at, we would look at ourselves and say, you know, I, I've, I've become apathetic, I've become lethargic. I've become too comfortable. Holy Spirit, do your work because your work is the only work that is lasting fruit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we walk through these seven letters, the church at Ephesus had a lot of great things going on. Jesus began that letter by bragging on them. He saw their works. He saw their labor. He saw their love for one another. He saw their patient endurance and then he just kind of hits the pause button and he says I've got somewhat against you because you have left your first love we landed in the city of Smyrna Smyrna was one of the churches that did not hear uh, any correction no reproof uh, no change of course of its direction Jesus only said to them you're in the middle of persecution you're going through a lot right now, and the news that uh, I have for you is that it's going to get worse. Uh, some of you are about to be thrown in prison for 10 days, but thank goodness at the end of 10 days, that's going to be over, and again, that didn't mean a jailbreak. That meant that many of them were going to lose their life for the sake of the gospel. So Jesus just challenges them to stay faithful to him even though there is imminent persecution. We arrived in the city of Pergamum and we, we found a church there that Jesus said, you have fallen into compromise. 
you are compromising the teaching. You're compromising your conviction about pure doctrine. We went to Thyatira, and there that church had fallen into not the sin of intolerance, but the sin of tolerance. They were tolerating sin in the church, even allowing a lady to get up and teach, to speak for the Lord as doctrine of the church, clearly things that violated God's plan for the church. We arrived at Sardis a couple of Sundays ago, and Sardis had a fake identity. It had a good reputation. Folks said, you know, the Sardis church is a church alive that's worth the drive. How many remember that line? All right. Have you, have you used that since that Sunday you told? Okay, I've had a couple people, uh, a couple people ask me now, what was that slogan again you used? The church alive is worth the drive. That's it, all right? The church at Sardis, though, had a fake reality. Everybody's buzzing about Sardis. Man, that place is hopping. You ought to go there. You ought to visit on a Sunday. Man, when you go to the church at Sardis, you'll never leave because that church is alive. And their letter arrives, and Jesus says, your reputation is fake. You're actually a church that is dead. Last Sunday, we went to Philadelphia, right? In the city of brotherly love, the pastor receives a letter, and Jesus says, be alert, I'm about to open a door for you. And when that door opens, I want you to walk through it. You're going to have some obstacles. You're going to have some pushback from Satan's club. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. But, but this is a great opportunity. And Jesus did not want Philadelphia to miss the opportunity he was about to give them. So today we land the plane in the seventh city, the city of Laodicea. And I could have given this message a lot of different titles, but I landed on this title. Laodicea was a church that was too comfortable. They had their own thing going on. They weren't living, they were not living in the American dream. They were living in the Laodicean dream. And they had reached a point of comfort. And and when you get the picture, you can kind of compare it to last week when Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, you have an open door, but here he speaks to Laodicea about a door they have, but it's a different kind of door. It's the front door, the door of the church, if you will. And Jesus gives the imagery in verse number 20, look in the text. Jesus says, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking, and I'm trying to get in. Isn't that interesting that Jesus would say that to a church? After all, a church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. And the church is made up of saved people, right? I mean, you might have your name on the membership role at a church, but that doesn't mean that your name is on heaven's role. That doesn't mean you're saved. The true church, the true church are those who have been born again by God's grace. So Jesus says to the church, hey, I want you to know I'm standing at the front door. I'm knocking on the door and I want somebody to come open it up and let me in. Does it not seem insane to you that Jesus has been pushed out of a church? Or that Jesus would want to feel welcome? Man, I would be so grieved today if... That were the case of the Point Church, right? I mean, after all, the name of our church is the Point Church. Our mission statement is loving people to the point of life, Jesus Christ. So in other words, the name of our church is the Jesus Church, the Point Church. The point of this church is Jesus. And friends, I don't care if you're Calvary Baptist Church or First Baptist Church or whatever the name of your church is, the point of church is Jesus. And how sad it would be that Jesus would say, I'm not even, I'm not even welcome in your church. Let me, let me pause for just a minute, if I may, and, and say a word about this verse, verse number 20. I've, I've heard it used through the years, uh, I believe, in a misapplication of the verse. This is not a salvation moment. Uh, this is not where Jesus is standing there knocking on your heart's door, wanting you to let him come in and be your Savior. That's not the meaning of this verse. I've even heard it. This is not Jesus standing at a church that is made up of a bunch of unsaved people and he's wanting to save them. That's not the imagery here. The imagery here is that they've got their own life going on. They've got their own practices going on. So much so that Jesus does not feel welcome in his own church. 
When you look at Laodicea, it is in a triad, if you will. Geographically, you have Laodicea, you have the city of Colossae, and the city of Hierapolis. They're all three very close together. Uh, When we went verse by verse through the book of Colossians, Paul referred to this in chapter 2 and verse number 1. He said, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you, the church at Colossae, and for those that are at Laodicea. And so there's a close connection there between these three cities. We know that Hierapolis was about six miles uh, from the city of Laodicea. Now I want you to get this picture geographically with me, and I don't want you to get bored with history and geography for a minute, because I believe this background is really the key to understanding this text and what it means. The city of Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. Uh, It would relate for us to maybe uh, anybody been to Hot Springs, Arkansas, or you've been to a a hot spring before. Okay, several of you have. Uh, Hierapolis was that way. The water there would get up to 95 degrees. And so people would go there thinking they were going to help their body or enrich their health. You know, some of us have not been to hot springs, but we've been in a hot tub before or or a jacuzzi, if you will. And, of course, we think about it being our health or loosening up our joints or that it's relaxing. And so people would go to Hierapolis for a time of refreshment by getting in those hot springs. If you move over to the city of Colossae, not very far away, It had right the opposite. Colossae was known for its cold, pure water. Does that just make anybody thirsty right now? You want to drink, right? We know that water is necessary for the uh, sustaining of a civilization. When you go back and study history, cities were founded based off of the location of a city. When you uh, make the journey to Israel with us, Uh, some of you in a couple of weeks, you're going to see that water was very important to every group of people as to where they settled. They had to have a water supply in order to survive. Interestingly, Laodicea did not, uh, it was not founded on a spot of a great water supply, but rather it was placed there because of the economic promise. It was the perfect place in that region for interstate commerce, if you will, trade and making money, a great passageway, and it did not have the water supply that it needed. So what did they do? Well, I I did some reading and research and actually watched a, a couple of documentaries about this. Amazingly, Laodicea came up with a very Uh, sophisticated water system to get water into the city and they tapped in to the city of Colossae and to the city of Hierapolis. So they developed a system of clay pipes that would bring the water down the mountains into the city. So get the picture. Hierapolis has hot water. Colossae has cold water. And you really can look at it from two perspectives. One, the hot water traveling through the pipes is going to cool down and lose some of its temperature. The cold water traveling through the pipes is going to warm up somewhat. It's very possible that they brought those two uh, pipes together. So the hot and the cold came together and traveled into the town. In those pipes, no doubt there were, there were germs, there were minerals, there was calcium, a variety of things. But let me ask you, How many in the room today want to drink for a steady diet, a regular routine, lukewarm water? I got up this morning and I made a a hot cup of coffee. Can I get a witness right there? Hot cup of coffee. Matter of fact, I drank two or three of those cups of coffee. We live in a day now where they have discovered iced coffee. Any iced coffeeites in the room today? Okay, a few of you. And I'll be honest with you, I enjoy them both, all right? I like a hot cup of coffee, and every now and then I'll get me an iced cup of coffee. But I tell you what I do not want. I do not want a lukewarm cup of coffee. Can I get a witness? There's something about lukewarm, right? In the city of Laodicea, I'm being humorous, but I want you to get this in your mind. In the city of Laodicea, they had a problem with what to drink because the water would would make them sick. It was not refreshing. You'd much rather have that cold cup of water to drink, right, to refresh your body, and you certainly would enjoy the hot water, 
when it came uh, to the health that they had. I give you all of that background to put in your mind to help us dissect this text for just a minute, all right? Look in your Bible. The letter arrives from the amen. The amen. What does amen mean? It means let it be so. The let it be so. That's our Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Let it be so. It's a fact, right? He's the faithful and true witness. That word witness there is the same word for the word martyr. Our Jesus, our Lord, was martyred for us. He was murdered for us. He is faithful and he is true. You always get truth with Jesus. We looked at that last week. He's the beginning of God's creation. Again, that does not mean that Jesus created him at his birth, but rather it means that he is the originator of God's creation. John chapter 1, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has created all things. He is the author of this letter. It arrives to the church. Look at verse number 15. He says, I know your works. I know what's going on there. And when I look at the church, you are neither hot or cold. I wish I would that you were either hot or cold, but rather you are lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will spit. Original language there literally is the word vomit. I will vomit you. I will spit you out of my mouth so here's the diagnosis of the church right off the bat jesus tells them you make me sick you're sickening to me now how does that fit today in this western culture i think we develop a mentality that jesus looks down and he's just thankful for every church he can get he's thankful for every location and Man, well, you know, we'll take as much work and as much churches as we can get. And Jesus would all almost look down on every church and say, you know, sometimes we say, well, we shouldn't criticize anybody or, or, or you know, we shouldn't look over there and say anything negative about other churches or other people. And I kind of get where you're coming from on that. But I want you to stop for just a minute and realize that Jesus is not pleased with every church. Jesus does not look at every church and say, man, I love what's going on there. No, Jesus looks at some churches and he's well pleased. He's well pleased. And that's the kind of church I want to pastor. And that ought to be the kind of church you want to be a part of. We're talking local expression here, right? Local expression of the church. Not every church is bad, but not every church, or not every church is good, not every church is bad. Jesus gives us a picture here that he looks at some churches and he says, what, what they've got going on there makes me sick. I want to throw them up. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? How many have heard a message from this passage through the years, the church of Laodicea? You heard a message? I've heard several, and I've heard it kind of illustrated like this. When Jesus talks about the hot and the cold, let's come over here and put the number 10, and that's hot. Let's come over here and put the number zero. That's cold. And so in your Christian life, where are you on this scale? Are you over here zero? Is your heart really cold? I mean, really cold. And I've heard it almost presented as if this person over here is barely saved. Okay? Cold. Over here, this is a 10. I mean, this is the family like the Vipen family that's here today, they're selling everything and, and they're moving to Central Asia and they're on fire for Jesus. They're red hot serving the Lord. You know, they're evangelizing and they're doing the work of the kingdom. They're on fire for Jesus. And let me say that I rejoice over every person that's on fire for Jesus. Amen? But the picture here that I've seen is that, you know, there are just so many Christians in the church, you're about a five. So take out your pen right now and write a number down. Anybody heard this before? That's, that's what I've heard. Take a, take a pen and write down. And I want you to write a number on your paper. Give yourself a score as to where you're at in God's great thermometer. Now, I want to tell you what I believe is the fallacy in that inter interpretation. 
It is when Jesus said, I wish that you were cold. Okay? The fallacy in that is that I believe our Lord and Savior would not say to his bride, I wish you were over here barely saved, not doing anything. Anybody tracking with me? I think that's where that interpretation breaks down. I think that the audience at Laodicea, when they heard Jesus talking about hot and cold, I believe they heard that in a positive manner. They thought very positively about the cold, and they thought very positively about the warm, meaning that those were two, those were two good things, and they totally understood how disgusting the lukewarm, tepid, mineral-filled, calcium-filled water was and how it created so many issues for them, so much so they didn't even want to drink it. And Jesus is saying it's like when you take a drink of your own water and you just spit it out because you don't want any more of it. And when I look at your church, when I take a drink out of the Laodicean church, Jesus says, it makes me sick. Why? Why was he sick with the Laodicean church? Look at verse 17. Jesus said, you're sickening, but then he said, you are self-sufficient. You're self-sufficient. 17. This is what they would say about themselves, how they would describe themselves. I'm rich. I'm prosperous. They would probably say something like this. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Look at my business. Look at my commerce. Look at how much money we have in the church. And then he says this. You ought to highlight this, circle it, mark it, point to it in your Bible. I believe it's a key, a key phrase in this text. Jesus said, you're saying, I need nothing. I need nothing. You know the problem with that? <laughs> the problem is the gospel says to us every morning when we open our eyes and put our feet on the floor, it is not just what saved me when I was 13 years old. It's what I need every day as a 47-year-old pastor. I need Jesus every day. I need Jesus every day. Jesus said, you're rich, you're prosperous. You've got a lot of money. You've, you, you've got a lot of things. And in the city of Laodicea, the, the farmers had a particular breed of black sheep that produced a very fine wool of the highest grade. So in other words, Laodicea was a city of fashion. Clothes came from Laodicea, the finest clothes. You know, like I said this in the first service and I got some big laughs like Gucci or... I don't have any of those clothes, but I've heard those are really nice. You know, when I was a teenager, it was like, man, if, if you are a young adult, if you had like Tommy Hilfiger on your shirt, you were the man, right? You kind of styling a little bit, right? Well, Laodicea was that way. It was, it was the place of fashion. So th they had plenty of money. So much so when the great earthquake hit, in the year 17, and this area was completely devastated. Philadelphia, in particular, was, was destroyed. Laodicea had a lot of damage. The Roman government came in and said, we want to give you money to repair your city. And Laodicea said, no thanks, we've got plenty of money. How about that? That's how rich this town was. They became self-sufficient. They didn't need any help. They didn't need any outside sources to come in and to sustain them. They had need of nothing. So my question for you today is this. Does that sound familiar? Does it? I've heard scholars and pastors for years say this. We are living in North America in the Laodicean church age. Now, I think we have to be careful about that as an absolute because we're really good at westernizing and English, Englishing theology. Anybody tracking with me? So, so what Pastor 
uh, described for us just a few minutes ago is not the American dream. What he described is more probably Smyrna, right? They're in persecution. So let's just contextualize it and bring it into North America. Let's bring it into the South. How about that? We've got comfortable churches. We're doing church better than we've ever done it. We've got more resources. We have millions of dollars that are going uh, to missions and to the sustaining of the local church. We, we all slept in a, in, a, in a nice, comfortable place last night. We drove here in, a, in a, a decent vehicle. At least it ran and got us here, right? We might leave a little oil on the parking lot, but we got here, right? I'm going to guess most people in the room are, are not worried about what you're going to eat for lunch here in about 15 or 20 minutes, that, that you've got groceries in your home and you've got lights and air conditioning and heat and, and uh, you've got clothes on your back and you had a, a pretty good choice uh, to select from this morning before you came to church. And you, you, you came to church this morning and quite honestly, when you look around, you say, I don't really need anything. I don't really need anything. Can you see how we fall into the trap of being self-sufficient? Our jobs, our health. Every day we need to be reminded that we do not sustain ourselves. We are sustained by the Lord. The Lord sustains us. We need Him. I wonder today, I just wonder, I'm not accusing anybody, I'm just asking the question as God's messenger. I wonder today... As Jesus looks down on his church, the expression of his church, I wonder if he says their problem is they've got too much. And because of that, they don't know what faith is. They have too much. So, so they, don't, they don't know what relying and leaning on me really looks like. They're so prosperous in that culture. They would probably never say this out loud as a church, but their attitude is, I need nothing. But when I look at the church, here's what I see. You are, verse 17, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Hedy Green was possibly America's greatest miser. She died in 1915 and had over a million dollars in cash and she lived in an unbelievably cheap way it was said about her that she would eat her oatmeal cold because she didn't want to spend any money on warming it up her son had a very serious leg issue and he needed to see a doctor and needed to have medical attention and the story is that she wasted so much time trying to find a free clinic to see him that he ultimately had to have his leg amputated. She was wealthy, but she lived like a pauper. And the legend or story is, is that the end of her life, as she is having a very heated debate over living in a cheap kind of way, that she actually suffered a stroke by becoming too excited in an argument over why everyone should drink skimmed milk. We chuckle a little bit at a woman that lived that way, but the truth is, as I read that story, it is an illustration of many Christians. Because we have a limitless supply of wealth at our disposal. And with that, I'm not talking about finances. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel right now because the prosperity gospel does not fit into the Scriptures. The prosperity gospel does not fit into this text because they were prosperous. They had a lot of money. I'm afraid today there are some Laodicean churches that have a lot of money and they're celebrating that as the blessings of God. And God is saying, that is not the gospel. We're not talking prosperity here. What we're talking about is spiritual blessings. Heavenly blessings. The treasure of the gospel. The treasure of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yet so many times and so many Christians, we choose to live in poverty in this world when we're trying to live off the things of this world. And we, Paul said it, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is that treasure? 
It's not gold and silver. It is Jesus. Jesus is our treasure. So what does Jesus say to them? He says to them in verse number 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. I am your treasure. You already have the treasure that you need. I read a story recently about the great newspaper publisher of the early part of last century. His name was William Randolph Hearst, and he had this deep love for art. He loved art. As a matter of fact, he had a warehouse where he kept uh, the art that he had purchased, and he had just crate after crate after crate after crate of fine art that he never pulled out of the crate, never looked at it, but he just continued to collect it because he had so much money. And one day he was reading the specs on a particular piece of art. He called his assistant in and he said, I want this piece. I'm not sure where it's located. I want you to find it and I want you to buy it. His assistant went away and began to research. And after a couple of months came back to him and said, Sir, I have found this piece of art. I have located it. And Hearst said, where is it? He said, it's in your warehouse. You've already bought it. You've already paid for it. You've already purchased it. It's out of sight, out of mind. Now, we did not purchase Jesus, but Jesus purchased us. And the greatest treasure today that we are seeking is not our 401k. It's not toys in this world. It's not the things of this world. The greatest treasure we have today is Christ. Jesus said to Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You're comfortable. You've become apathetic. You're not bringing value to the kingdom because you're placing way too much value in the things of this world. Jesus said, if you'll buy my gold refined by fire, then, verse 18, you will be rich. You're so proud of your layout of saying clothes and you're styling and strutting around looking like you're something and Jesus said, you need to come to my department store. You need my clothes. You need white raiments representing purity you know when you look you look in the bible um you see that there's a a thing about nakedness right the covering of the body we see it in the book of genesis and so so jesus is giving them in verse number 18 he's giving them the treatment this is what you need to do this is how you need to respond to yourself adam and eve in the garden what happened when they sinned? They were living in their innocence, right? They were living in their sinlessness. But in the garden, once they sinned, what was the first thing that they did? The first thing they did was they covered themselves up. At that time, they didn't need clothes, right? But after they sinned, the first thing they did, they began to cover themselves up. And Jesus said, you're, you're, you're worried about those nice clothes that you have. You don't realize that you're naked. Here's the treatment. The treatment Jesus prescribes for them is to put on my clothes. Put on my clothes. Secondly, he says to them, you're very proud of your salve." Laodicea was very famous for an salve, that an ointment that... Uh, was manufactured there and sold there. And no doubt they made a lot of money off of their ISAF. But Jesus says, more important than your ISAF is I want you to put my ISAF on so that you can properly see what's going on in your life. How many of you have had some of Jesus' ISAF put on you? In your eyes? And it removed the scales? For you to really be able to see what you needed to see. Look at me church. A comfortable church. Needs some Jesus I salve. A comfortable church. An apathetic church. A lethargic church. We need the scales removed from our eyes. So that we can see the reality. Jesus says buy my clothes. Put on my I salve. And then verse number 19 Jesus said, the ones that I love, my children, look at me. Th this is how you know. You want confirmation of your salvation? You, you, you want to know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved, right? I, I want that. Here's one way that you know. 
Jesus said, the ones I love, I correct. I reprove them. I discipline them. Interestingly, the word reprove there means two things. One, it means to expose, to get it all out in the open. You see, for the Laodicean church, it was out of sight, out of mind, until Jesus rattled their cage by saying, you become comfortable and you're blind. Jesus exposed the condition of the church. The second meaning of that word is the word for conviction. I just have to wonder today, I just have to wonder, as I've wondered this week, I just wonder how much in the North American church today we really understand Holy Spirit conviction. I have people come to this church and they'll say something like this to me. They'll say, you know, Pastor, one of the reasons we come to this church is because you like, you like preach on sin. You know, we kind of get our toes stepped on a little bit. And obviously I don't come up here every Sunday like I've sprinkled gunpowder on my cereal oatmeal or anything, but, but how can you preach the gospel and not preach on sin? How, how can you, I mean, shouldn't one of the main things when the church comes together like this, shouldn't this be a time where we all pray and repent? I mean, to just say, Lord, show me. Just show me, Lord. Show me what's in my heart. Expose the crud in my heart. And, and, and convict me of my sin. Convict me in such a way where, where I repent and I want to turn from that. My grandfather was a, a Southern Baptist pastor for over 50 years, and I heard him tell all kinds of stories of some of the revivals uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. There was one summer where he preached uh, for 12 straight weeks. He preached every single night, didn't miss a night. I'm going, how in the world do you do that? I mean, you got to have some B12 shots or something, right, along the way. Every night, let me tell you something. When my granddaddy preached, it wasn't soft and quiet. When, when he would get done preaching, he would first thing he would have to do, he'd have to go and change his clothes. Because he would literally be soaking wet uh, from the manner in which he preached. And, and I heard him say this more than once, more than once. And he's been gone for several years now, and I wonder what he would say if he were alive today. But he would say, you know, I remember the day when the Holy Spirit conviction would be so strong that people would grab a hold of the pew in front of them, and they would hold on so tight because of the conviction and he would say this, until their knuckles turned white. Conviction, under conviction. You know, in this church, when you get out of your car, we want to be friendly and we want to be welcoming and we want you to come here and, and, and we uh, want to be friendly and kind and welcoming. But just hear my heart for just a minute. We have created a culture in the North American church that is seeker-friendly. It's all about the experience. We want everybody to leave happy and have a good experience. And I believe in a lot of places we're missing the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. Not just to the lost. The gospel needs to be preached regularly to the saved. You do know that, right? You need the gospel every day. I need the gospel every day. It wasn't just sufficient for me when I was 13 years old, when I got saved and born again. It's sufficient today. I preach it to myself regularly. Jesus said to those that I love, I'm going to expose, I'm going to convict, I'm going to discipline. Man, we don't like that word, do we? At the Coleman house when I was growing up, when that word got used, that didn't mean anything good was going to be happening in the future. I heard a preacher say one time, he said, my daddy, he said he used to spank me till the smoke alarm went off in the house, right? And when he said that, I kind of, I got a few of those through the years, and I want you to know I deserved every one of them. But the word discipline here in this text is, is not just that. The word discipline here means education and training. That's the word, okay? So, so, so what, is, what is God doing in our growth track process? What is He doing? He's teaching us through the Holy Spirit. He's teaching us through the Word of God. We are being trained up like a gymnasium. We're being trained up and we're being built up unto godliness. That's what Jesus wants from his church. Whom I love, I rebuke, I discipline. What response does he want from us today? Well, he says, I want you to be zealous 
which means to be earnest and sincere and to go hard after him. And I want you to repent. That word is the word of changing your mind. Changing your mind. I wonder how many churches today need to, need to maybe we need to just be shaken by the Holy Spirit, that God needs to get our attention. And what he really wants to say to us is, look, you got a lot of stuff going on, but I want you to listen to me. You need to change your mind about what you're doing. Maybe we're off, off chasing something that is not God's will. Maybe we're off chasing something that's not bearing eternal fruit, and we're wasting all of our time on it. And God says, I want you over here, and you need to change your mind about who you are and what you're doing. That's what repentance is, right? Confession is saying the same thing God says about our action. Repentance is changing our mind about our behavior. And we don't say, this is okay. We say, I repent. Jesus, I want to follow you. So that's the treatment. Jesus gives them the treatment. This is what you need to do. And then let me finish up these seven letters by giving us the prognosis. What does the future look like? Well, Jesus reminds them in 21 and 22 that the prognosis is eternal. If you'll open the door, verse 20, if you'll let me in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fellowship with you. I'm going to eat with you. We're going to walk in fellowship and harmony. And if you'll do that, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I'm going to grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There it is, the ascension. Jesus is seated at the right hand. We are all headed to eternity as Christians to be around the throne of God. And then, of course, he finishes up by challenging those who will to listen. Those who will, open your ears. Listen what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, I want to wrap up the series today by, by just saying that we are, we are here today in God's will, His purposes, and His plans. I said this yesterday with Miss Alice, you know, 97, almost 98, her days were numbered of the Lord. And a couple of Tuesdays ago, God says, your work is done. Your work is done. Your task is finished. Come on home to be with me. We don't know how many days. We don't know how many days we have here on this earth. We don't know how long we're going to live. But as Christians, we live every one of those days with an eternal perspective. We know that at any moment, we could pass away. At any moment, Jesus could return. And so we live today not with, with ignorance of being wise about our finances and our retirement and taking care of our family. That's certainly not what I am preaching about or against at all. But what I am saying is, is that if we as Christians spend all of our time focused and engaged with that, and we don't spend time focusing on eternity, we are missing the point of the Christian life. And we are missing the point of the journey the point of the journey now as i read through these seven letters how many of you found in your spiritual life that you can be a pharisee oh yeah you're real short to raise your hand on that one aren't you how many of you know you know that it's easy for you at times to see somebody else's sin than to see your own yeah i can see the sin in your life but it's the, the analogy, the analogy of Jesus. You've got a, you know, you, you you've got a two by four sticking out the side of your head while you're pointing at somebody's speck of sawdust, right? What we all need to do is pay attention to ourselves. We need to evaluate. Have I gotten comfortable? Have I gotten lethargic, apathetic? Because the church is made up of individuals, right? So if our church is not going to be comfortable, get comfortable then you're going to have to get uncomfortable. I'm going to have to get uncomfortable and deal with the things in my own life. When I was growing up, we used to, when we got, finally got cable, um, these kids today, they have no clue how we grew up, right? Aluminum foil on the antennas of the TV and all that stuff. I remember when we got cable, we got WGN out of Chicago. And I remember as a kid, I loved watching the Bozo Show. Uh, every every show, every sh anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, a few of you. 
uh, every show they would have the grand prize game, right? And they would put those five buckets out there, and uh, they would give, give them a ping pong, and they'd ring the first one, which anybody could do that. My grandmother could ring the first one, right? But then you had to, you know, start tossing. And then if you got the fifth bucket, then, you man, you really got something nice. And so I love watching uh, that, that show. Well, I, I read something a couple weeks ago about him. In his latter years, uh, Bozo partnered with the American Cancer Society. And he would go around and he would uh, do talks and, and make uh, kids and adults laugh. And he, made, he even made the statement uh, that in his latter years, he made over a million people laugh or a million people smile uh, as the clown. And because he was working for the American Cancer Society, at every show or every event that he finished, he always finished it with the same line. He would always say, all right, now everybody, listen, everybody needs to have a checkup, everybody needs to be scanned to make sure that you don't have cancer. And so he would do this every time, over and over and over again in all of his events. Well, guess what? He didn't go and get himself checked. He didn't get himself scanned. And one day he found out he was terminally ill with cancer. And that's how Bozo the Clown, the man that played that, that's how he actually passed away. When I read that story, I thought of my own life. Look at me, look at me. I'm done, I'm done. Look at me. I thought of my own life. I thought of my own life. Get right with God. Get right with God. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't be comfortable. Love Jesus with all your heart. Even as a pastor, it starts with my personal relationship with Jesus. How could I stand up here and tell you to do right if I'm not doing right? How can I stand up here and tell you to love Jesus with all your heart if I'm tangled up in the things of this world? i got to look out for me first and make sure that my heart and my life is right with Jesus. And I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want to make... I don't want to make my father, I don't want to make my savior sick. How about you? Would you pray with me?